Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Open your Bibles. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, as we continue in this series looking at this marvelous section of Jesus in his last eight hours with his disciples. As we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for your love for us. And so grateful that you have, as we already said this morning, you put us into your family. You give us the opportunity to come together to fellowship with one another. You give us the great opportunity to come together and to worship you, to lift our voices in praise to you. And what a sweet time it is. You've also given to us your word. And you give us now this opportunity to open it together and to hear from you together as you speak through your word. We ask that your spirit would take your word that you would illumine our hearts, that you would cause your, your word to take root in us and to change us so that we are not just hearers only, as James says, but we are the doers of the word. Reshape us. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we ask. Amen. None of us likes being sold a bill of goods. You know, where somebody sells us something, and then when we get it, we realize it isn't quite what was promised. wasn't what it was supposed to be. Whether we're talking a uh, bogus investment deal that goes bad, or whether we're talking a car that was misrepresented. As I was writing that yesterday, I thought about my, my brother-in-law years ago. He and his wife bought a car, a new car at a dealership, and brought it home, only then to realize, as they were digging through the glove box, they figured out the car had been sold before, had been returned, and it had some damage on the hood, and they'd repainted it. And none of that, of course, was told to them when they bought it. We hate being taken advantage of like that, don't we? Maybe it's not anything that big. Maybe it's just, you know, you bought a, a kitchen utensil off of TV, you know, or, you know, that knife that cuts through anything and everything like hot butter and never needs sharpening. Yeah. <laughs> and I do have, if you bought that, I've got some estate land down in Florida. Yeah, that's, we hate that. And most all of us have been at some point or other a victim of misrepresentation or even outright fraud. Sadly, there sometimes there are very well-meaning Christians who will go and they share the gospel with people and yet they misrepresent the Christian life when they do it. Many of us have heard such things. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and he's going to fix your marriage and solve your problems and and make things go swimmingly well uh, for the rest of your life. Or not usually quite that bold and blatant, but some kind of a, you know, become a Christian and God will solve your problems. And, And the reality is that sometimes 
when someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, sometimes God does fix their marriage. Sometimes He does solve their problems. But we know the reality that sometimes people become believers in Christ and are shocked to discover that they have more problems afterwards than they did before they came to Christ. We know that Scripture, while it, it is very clear and experience, now I'm 67 years old, I can verify by experience in mine and by, the, by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks that I know that life with Christ is far better than life without Christ. Overall, it is better quality life following Jesus. It is purposeful life. It is meaningful life. It is life that is eternally significant. It is life that, as Jesus promised back earlier in this chapter, is full of His joy. And at the end, there is eternal life. And heaven full of joy and pleasure forevermore. And yet, nowhere does God promise Nowhere does the Word of God promise that our life as Jesus' followers will be a life without struggle, that it will be a life without trouble, that it will be a life without suffering, that it will even be a life without great pain or great grief, as we will discover in the passage before us today. We're here in John 15. We know that Jesus is spending just the last few hours with his disciples before the cross. About eight hours this evening from when they gather in the upper room until when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is fully aware of all that is coming. The scripture tells us. And he is in these, these short hours, he is preparing his very unaware disciples for what they will need when he is gone. Jesus, as we saw earlier in this chapter a couple of weeks ago, has spoken about our relationship with him. That if we abide in Him, if we make our home in Him, then we will be fruitful, we will be productive, we will have again a life of, of eternal significance. We will enjoy His love and we will be full of His joy. Jesus went on, as we saw last week, to speak about our relationships with one another as believers in Jesus Christ. With one another as Christ followers, we are to love one another as He has loved us. And now, in the rest of chapter 15, as we'll see, beginning in verse 18 today, Jesus addresses our relationship with the outside world, our relationship with the world out there, the unbelievers. Verse 18, if the world hates you, and by the way, that little word if, we usually take that word if to mean, you know, it's a possibility, maybe a remote possibility. And so we think he may be, may be saying here, if by some slim chance, if by some uh, really unforeseen circumstance here, the world hates you, 
But that's not what it really is. Is The construction here, as I understand, I'm not a Greek scholar, but as I read the Greek scholars, the, the Greek construction here is not that it might happen, but it's going to happen. It is the fact. And in fact, Jesus will say that a few verses from now. He will say it very clearly, not if the world hates you, but the world will hate you. So he says, hey guys, one thing you need to know. Not just that you need to abide in me, you need to make your home in me. Not just that you need to love one another, but you need to understand another thing. Be ready because the world will hate you. Now what Jesus is not saying by that is he is not saying that every person in the world will hate you. Even though some days it feels like that. (laughs) He's not saying that every unbeliever will hate you. And even though, as we noted last week, even in in our culture here in the United States, while it is turning less favorable towards Christ and towards Christianity and towards churches, we noted last week, according to Pew Research, that uh, that a full over a third, some 35 percent of Americans today say that Christianity, the church, Religion has no positive impact in society. As a matter of fact, let me rephrase that, because what they said was it has a negative impact. A third of Americans think that your faith has a negative impact on society. There is increasing hostility in our culture towards Christ and Christianity But I would venture to say that if we go to your next door neighbor, if they're unbelievers, if we go to your unbelieving co-workers, if we go to your unbelieving classmates and we ask them, do you hate Christianity? The vast majority of them will say, well, no. And if we go to them and we ask these same people, we say, do you hate Christ? The vast majority of them would say no. Matter of fact, the vast majority, according to the surveys, the vast majority of Americans would say they have a favorable view of Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, he was a great man, a great teacher, a wonderful moral leader. They think wonderful things like that about him. If we asked your unsaved neighbor, your unsaved friends, your unsaved co-workers, your unsaved classmates, do they hate you? We might get a different answer. <laughs> but. It's significant, again, that Jesus doesn't say here that the unbelievers around you will all hate you. What he says is, very specifically, the world will hate you. When Jesus mentions here the world, he's not talking about the globe that is circling around the sun, floating out there in space. He's not talking about that world. When he talks about the world, he's not talking about the geographic world, the continents and and countries of the world. When he's talking about the world here, he's not talking about the population-wise, about the population of the world. What he means here when Jesus uses this word world in this, and by the way, he uses it six times in just these two verses, uh, verse 18 and 19. What he is referring to is the world system, the world order. 
the system, this fallen, broken world, he says, hates you. And the reason that is, is because this fallen, broken world is under the domain of Satan. Yes, God is sovereign over all, but he has given Satan latitude here to roam about and do things in this world. It is his domain. And so Jesus, back in chapter 14, earlier in our in our study, in verse 30, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 refers to Satan as the God, little g, of this world. The world system is opposed to God. The world system is opposed to Jesus Christ, who is the rightful king of this world. And the world system is opposed to the followers of Jesus Christ, who are the citizens of heaven, the people of God. And that's... In a nutshell, why the world hates us. But still, we wonder. When Jesus says here, the world will hate you, it does make us sit there and wonder, wait, why would the world hate me? Why would the world hate you? I mean, we're all cuddly, lovable people. We're warm, fuzzy people. We're we're nice people. We do nice things. We shower. You know, we let sometimes people go ahead of us in line in the supermarket when they only have two items and we have, you know, a basket full. We're nice people. Why would the world hate us? Jesus gives us five reasons here. Look at verse 18. We only looked at the first phrase. Let's keep going. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. First reason the world hates, world system hates us is because it hates Jesus. It hated Jesus first. So Jesus says, don't take it personally, by the way, because the hatred that is directed towards you is actually directed towards me. That's why in Acts Acts chapter 5, we find the disciples rejoicing. They had been arrested. They'd been beaten and they had been sent out and they were arrested and beaten, but they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name they realized they weren't being they weren't suffering because of themselves they were suffering the anger of these religious leaders that was directed toward Jesus because the world system hates Jesus so he goes on he says if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you You see, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as the scripture says that God transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We are not of the world anymore. We belong to Jesus. And so because we belong to Jesus, we have different values. Because we belong to Jesus, we have different priorities Because we belong to Jesus, we have different aspirations. Because we belong to Jesus, we have different purposes. Because we belong to Jesus, all of these things are true. And all of these things are at odds. They are in contrast to the world system around us. If we're really following Jesus, we don't laugh at all the same things that they laugh at. We don't enjoy all the same things that we enjoy. 
We prize different things and that makes us stand out. Because now we're on a different team. So the world system is opposed to us. It's kind of like wearing a Cardinals jersey in Chicago. You stand out and immediately some people hate you. Not because they know you, but because they recognize he's on a different team. We are not of the world anymore, Jesus says, and so they hate you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus is our master. But the world's master is Satan. We have a different master. Now granted, if you go to your next door neighbor, if you go to your coworker, if you go to your classmates, and you say, is Satan your master? And they will probably say, well, no. We know that the Scripture says that we are either serving God or we are serving Satan. There is no middle ground. There is no other option. There is no opt-out. They may not know it. They may not think it. But the world system and everyone in it is, their master is Satan. And our master is Jesus Christ. And those are not compatible. And so the world system hates us. And by the way, because we aren't greater than our master, he says here, because we aren't greater than Jesus, because we are his servants, we can expect the same treatment from the world which Jesus received. There's a fourth reason here that why the world hates us. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The fourth reason that they hate us is because they do not know God. Now, again, if we go out into the and listen in the world, if we turn on the TV and we listen to the news, we will hear all kinds of people talking about God all the time. People love to talk about God. Sometimes it's in cursing, <laughs> but often it's just in discussions. And especially if there's ever a tragedy, if there's ever a disaster, oh, people are quick to say, let's go and pray to God. Oh, please be in prayer for our, you know, these folks and those folks. And if ever, if ever there's an argument, people love to say, well, God is on our side because my side's the right side. Whatever it is, a political thing, a, whatever side it is, even your sports team, you know, well, God is obviously on the cardinal team side, you know. You'll hear people talk about God all the time, but there's a problem. See, people love God 
But the God that they love is the God that they imagine, not the God who is. They love the God they imagine because they can redefine Him to be what they want God to be. Because they can, they can control the God they imagine. But when they are confronted with the God who is, they do not like that and they hate that. Which is why they hate Jesus, because Jesus came as the revelation of God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? It's Jesus. Why is He called the Word? Because the Word is the expression of God that we can, we can understand. Just like the only way that you can know and understand my thoughts is when I give words to them, when I speak them. And Jesus is the visible, understandable expression of God. How do we know the invisible, eternal God whom we cannot see? We can only know Him if He communicates to us. And Jesus is the final Ultimate communication from God. When God Himself became one of us, and we saw God in human form, and they hated Him. Why? Because Jesus reveals who God actually is. And the reality of who Jesus is removes all the excuses and all the things they've had in their ignorance that they could justify, which is why it says that if He had not come, they would not be guilty of their sin. Well, they were guilty of sin, certainly, but they didn't think they were. They had all these excuses about, well, God is like this, God is like that, so everything is, you know, we can excuse all these things. But Jesus came revealing who God actually is. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just and God will punish sin, which is why God punished God the Father, punished God the Son on the cross for our sin, because that's the only way sin could be forgiven. There is a holy, righteous God. Jesus revealed that, and the world hates that message. Not only does He revealed who God is. They hate Jesus because in those same verses we see that Jesus exposes their sin. The truth about Jesus exposes our sin and our guilt as humans. When I was in college, when I would go back home to Dallas for the summer, I would always get all the jobs I could trying to earn enough money to go back to school. And uh, I worked during the day at one job. At night, I worked as a janitor in my church for a couple of summers. And so I would go to the church after everybody else had gone. And there were a couple of us who did that. I worked in one area. Another, one, another guy worked in another part. My area, I had this row of buildings that was a uh, row of classrooms that was on the back part of the property. And I would go there. You know, it's midnight or so, and you, you open, stick a key in, unlock the door, and go in, and you would hear this. <laughs> now, in Texas, cockroaches are like that, you know. <laughs> okay, they're like that. <laughs> you could literally hear them when you open the door, and you turn the light on, and there's, you know, a couple dozen of them. <laughs> Man, they are, you've never seen anything move that fast as they... Run from the light. Jesus, John 1, go back again to the beginning of this book. John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It says, in Him was 
light. That life was the light of man. We go to John chapter 3 and Jesus said this, This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who, who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Why do some people hate Jesus? Why does the world system hate Jesus? Because he exposes their sin. So they hate Jesus. They also hate the followers of Jesus. Because if the followers of Jesus are living as followers of Jesus, if we are living godly and rightly, we, you see, as Jesus called us to be, we are the light of the world. We are the reflectors of his light in this world. And in so doing, not by going out and being judgmental, but simply living right, we expose the sin of a sinful world. And the world system hates us. There's five reasons why the world hates us. Jesus goes on. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We saw a couple of weeks ago as Pastor Aaron, in his message as we were in this series, we saw Jesus giving the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. We noted then that, that Jesus hits it a number of times in this evening with his disciples. This is one of those times. And Jesus is saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is coming. And we noted that when the Helper, the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to do several things. And here he says that the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about me and you will also bear witness. We have a mission. In the midst of the hatred of the world system, we have a mission. Our mission is to be witnesses of Jesus. And this coming Holy Spirit is going to enable us in this. And we know, of course, that the Holy Spirit did come. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And from that moment on, every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. And he says here, the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within you to enable you and me, to empower you and me to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Even... And especially in a hostile world. And as Jesus stated back in verse 20, what that means is that there will be some, even in a hostile world, not because you are a great speaker, not because you are eloquent, not because you're smart, but there will be some because the Holy Spirit is in you when you and I begin to witness and to share about Jesus Christ with others. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, there will be some who listen and who believe. Matter of fact, very often the ones that we would say are the least likely and the most unlikely to do so. So Jesus has, is saying here in the midst of this bad situation where the world hates us, we have a mission. 
But why is Jesus giving all this downer information? Passover night was supposed to be a nice, pleasant evening, nice celebration as we remember what God has done in the past. And Jesus has already talked about, well, guys, I'm leaving, (laughs) going away to a place you cannot follow. Already been kind of an upsetting night. Now Jesus is talking about suffering. Talking about persecution. Why in the world is Jesus bringing all this up? Well, chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming and whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. While I was with you, the object of their wrath and their hatred was me. But I'm leaving. Now the object of their hatred and their wrath is going to be you. And I'm saying these things to you now because they will happen. And as this evening began, the disciples were still looking forward to a to Jesus bringing in an earthly kingdom Right now. They think they're really probably on the verge of that. Now Judas has kind of seen through it. He's realized this whole thing has fallen apart. He was only in this for himself, for to profit off of this, off of the kingdom. He's seen it's not happening. He's already right now out selling Jesus out for some money because he's seen the handwriting on the wall. These guys are maybe getting the picture that things aren't as rosy as they thought. They know that Jesus has been in confrontation with the religious leaders. They really haven't been excited. But just four days ago, huge throngs, huge crowds of people were cheering Jesus as the Messiah, welcoming him into town, into Jerusalem. And I think they're still thinking that the kingdom is just right around the corner. The reason I think that is because Luke tells us in his account of this night that they were into an argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That was right after they got into the room. It's before the foot washing, before the meal. They get there, they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. So they're, they're pretty confident. We're just, it's just coming. And Jesus is making it very plain that their earthly future is going to be drastically different from what is in their imaginations. There will be rejection. There will be ostracism. Even death. Had they been listening, Jesus has been saying this all along. It's not really a new theme. We go back early in Jesus' ministry, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You recall as, as Jesus begins with the Beatitudes... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of, on my account, on account of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Interesting. We don't have time this morning to go there, or we would really run out of time. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is commissioning the twelve disciples to go out on a mission trip. And as he does, there in Matthew 10, if you read through, there's a whole long couple of paragraphs where Jesus talks about suffering and persecution. He says, they will flog you in the synagogues. They will hand you over. Fathers will hand over their children. Children will hand over their parents. They will betray them to be persecuted on account of Jesus. And he's warning the disciples. So it's coming to them. There in Matthew 10. On several occasions, at different places in the gospel, on several different occasions, Jesus told his disciples these familiar words. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus wasn't saying when he said that, he wasn't saying, hey guys, go see if you can find yourselves a little gold cross that you can put on a gold chain and put around your neck. That's the way we carry our cross and take it up. No. What Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, be prepared to die a bloody, agonizing death. So Jesus here in John 15 in these last, this last little bit of time before he's going to the cross, he's saying, hey guys, I'm telling you this again now. It's not really new stuff. But I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, and they will, when they happen, you'll realize, Jesus told us this was going to happen. So that you won't fall away. So that you won't fall away in discouragement or in fear. So that you won't think, oh no, God messed up. God failed. So that you will know, no, this is, this is God's plan all along. God is in charge. Don't fall away. It's not a mistake. Jesus had already told him in Luke chapter 14, again, one of those times where he said, Take up the cross. Follow me. He said, count the cost. If you want to be my disciple, count the cost. There's a cost to follow Jesus. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? What if it means suffering? What if it means death? Is it worth it? Now, had Jesus put it in those terms this night, well, the disciples had already said, actually, Jesus, I'll follow you to the death. They'd already said it. But is it worth it? Well, after the resurrection of Jesus, every one of them lived boldly for Jesus. They witnessed boldly for Jesus. And every one of them died the death of a martyr, killed for their faith, except John, whom they tried to kill, as tradition says. They boiled him in oil, but he wouldn't die. God kept him alive. Is it worth it? He said, yeah. 
Rewards are in heaven and they're eternal. Now, great suffering, martyrdom, they are not the lot. They are not the the destiny that God has chosen for every follower of Jesus, for every believer. But Jesus here is warning us that every believer is in the crosshairs of the world system which hates them. And that every believer, Scripture tells us, will suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It may not be large persecution by our standards, but there will be a cost to standing faithfully for Jesus. And from that night until our day, History has proven that that is true. Historians tell us that there have been more than 70 million Christians who have been martyred for their faith, killed for their faith, from time of Jesus till now. And they tell us that half of those martyrdoms occurred in the 20th century, in the last century. In the 23 years, actually 22 years of this century, numbers are sketchy out there. They're, they're varied and quite debated right now. Time has a way of clarifying a lot. The estimates, some say it's 85,000 folks have been killed for their faith in Christ in the last 22 years. Other estimates say it's 2.3 million I don't know what the actual numbers are, but whatever they are, they're staggering numbers. Taking the lowest estimates that I could find out there, just the lowest estimates I could find, I realized that on average, over 12 of our brothers and sisters in Christ die every single day because of their faith. They are killed for their faith. Every single day, Several dozen of our Christian brothers and sisters are severely beaten, physically attacked, raped, tortured, imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Every day, over ten churches are burned to the ground, destroyed. And so it's not just something that happened back in the first century that Jesus is telling his disciples then they need to be ready for. It's something Jesus is saying it is going to be part of the life of his disciples until he returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We just happen to live in a bubble in our portion of the world. It's. The costs are relatively low to be a follower of Christ. But in over half of the world, the costs can be very high. And we might wonder, why does God allow this to happen to his people? Why does God allow this to happen to followers of Jesus? And I suppose there might be many answers to that question, and we'll probably learn a lot of those when we get to heaven. But one of those answers 
we can find going back to just the generation after this. Writing just about 150 years after this night in with Jesus' disciples, Tertullian, the Christian leader and writer, I actually quoted him last week, he made this observation, looking at the persecution of the church going on around him. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As believers live faithfully and die faithfully for Christ, the gospel goes forth even bolder and stronger and more effectively. In a similar thought, Jeff King, who's the president of International Christian Concern, which is an organization that gets relief and support and help to to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, he wrote a book that just came out just a very short time ago. I was reading it last week, and I thought this was worthwhile, what he wrote. The great irony in all this, talking about persecution throughout the world, rampant persecution. So the great irony in all this is that living in Satan's crosshairs ends up being a great gift to the church. Satan and his agents believe that they can physically kill off the church, but in the end, all their efforts act like the wind on a dandelion. Instead of permanently destroying the church, they scatter the seeds of the martyr. Those seeds go into the hearts of people, and when watered and fertilized by the Holy Spirit, they sprout and they grow, and the church spreads. To use another metaphor, he says, the martyr is a branch that has been set afire. A torch. And Satan thinks that he can extinguish the light by snuffing out the human being. But human beings are spiritually combustible. Blowing out the flame of one believer merely spreads his sparks onto the tinder around him. The same today as it was almost 2,000 years ago. In the places where the church is persecuted most... The church grows the most, which causes some of our persecuted brothers and sisters to pray for us who live at ease because they say, God needs to bring a little persecution your way. They don't ask for us to pray, by the way, for them to be delivered for persecution. They ask for us to pray for them to stay faithful in it. Because they see what God does in it. So let me suggest very quickly, wrap it up here, three takeaways from this passage. First is this. Don't isolate from the world. Yes, verse 19 of chapter 15. Jesus has chosen us out of the world and made us his own. So we do not belong to the world anymore. We are not of the world But Jesus has also sent us back into the world. We are his witnesses, we saw here in chapter 15. And we get over to chapter 17. Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father for us, he says, I have sent them into the world. But Jesus hasn't sent us into the world to go look like the world. He hasn't sent us into the world to think like the world. He hasn't sent us into the world to act like the world. Or to rejoin the world. He sent us into the world. To be lights 
to be witnesses. And so rather than retreating as, as the society around us heats up, rather than retreating into our Christian bubbles and our Christian enclaves, we need to be in the world. We cannot witness and testify the truth about Jesus Christ to those who do not know Him if we do not know them, if we don't have contact with them. Some of us may need to be more intentional about making contact with the unbelievers around us. I put myself in that category. It is so easy, especially as a pastor, to get all, spend all my time with the sheep and have no time to make relationships and to share the gospel with those just a few doors down or those in places where I frequent. Let's not isolate ourselves from the world. Let's be intentional about making contact. Secondly, along those lines, pray for opportunities and pray for alertness and pray for boldness. Pray that God will give us opportunities to share the gospel and pray that when those opportunities come, that we will be bold to speak up. We need to pray that for us. We need to pray that for one another. Because how many of you struggle with with being afraid at times to open your mouth and share the gospel? About as many of you as are afraid to raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah. Let's be honest. We need boldness. You know what? The Apostle Paul needed it. Look what the Apostle Paul asked for prayer for. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, we need that same prayer, don't we? Pray for one another. Pray for our missionary partners. Pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Again, that's their prayer request that they ask for. Lastly, we should expect what Jesus received from the world. What did Jesus receive from the world? The world system hated him. We should expect that. But some believed. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In verse 20, he says, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In other words, many will not believe, they'll reject you, they may even persecute you. But some, some will hear the word, they'll receive it, they'll trust Jesus. Even if we live in a culture that's hostile to him, he promises that some people will believe in him through our faithful witness. So, brothers and sisters, let us not shrink back. Let us not quit. But let's embrace the mission that Jesus has given us. Even if the going gets difficult, even if the world is hostile. And next week, as Jesus continues, we'll see how Jesus speaks, continues speaking with these disciples and to us to say, hey, Here's how in the midst of a world that is falling apart, in a hostile world, here's how you can have peace. So we'll look forward to that next time. Father, thank you for your word, how we need it, how we struggle with this. Again, every one of us just about 
said, yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with being bold. I struggle with being faithful as a witness. Yet it's what you've called us to in a world that is hostile. Again, not every unbeliever around us, not every person around us is hostile. But the system is. So we can expect that sometimes it's going to cause us trouble. Oh, but Lord, may we be looking for the opportunities you put before us to share the good news of Jesus. Because without him, people are lost. How they need to know there is a God who loves them, who loves them so much he sent a Savior to rescue them from sin and hell and to give them eternal life. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.